Hi everyone, my name's Ken Jacobson and I'm a documentary programmer here at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival. And I'm also co-host of a podcast called Top Docs Award-Winning Documentary Filmmakers. So I thought I would just start with a quick intro to explain why are we doing this panel. Programming director Jesse Bishop and I landed on this topic because we were looking for a theme, and when I started going through the lineup, this one group of films jumped out at me because not only were these deeply personal stories in these four films, but in each case, the filmmakers literally put themselves in the frame. By doing so, I felt like they kind of crossed this threshold. It's different than, for instance, films that might have the filmmaker narrating the film, but never appears on screen. And this can be a really difficult decision, I think, for filmmakers to make. And once you go that route, there's no turning back. And we'll talk a bit about that as we go along. It also takes courage, and we'll talk about that too. Another thing that these filmmakers have in common, these films are all these filmmakers feature film debuts, which given the level of difficulty involved, makes them all the more challenging to make and I would say remarkable. I would also add that these films are all dealing with pretty heavy subjects, but there's also humor here in places as well. And so I would like to give us all, including the people up on the panel and those of you in the audience, permission to laugh a little today, if possible, if you feel so moved. These are also films that are the kinds of films that we feature on the Top Docs podcast. They're original, compelling, creative voices with a real commitment to the craft. This is the first panel that we've done at Top Docs, and I'll just do a brief promo. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc., and you can follow us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. So I'm going to ask each of our filmmakers to introduce themselves and give the name of their film and also ask you to please tell us a bit about your careers and what you were doing prior to making these films. So we'll start with Katya. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on this panel. My name is Katya Soldak, and I'm the director of the documentary film The Lone Breakup. It's uh, my first featured documentary film about Ukraine, my home country, trying to separate from Russia and leave Russia and its Soviet past behind. Since I worked on this film for over a decade, or maybe even closer to 15 years, I haven't done much prior <laughs> to that. Things were developing as I was working on the film, but I am a journalist, a professional journalist, and I worked as a journalist, and making this film was just a journey that I started, and I didn't know how long it would take, and as I said, it took over a decade. So I'm a Ukrainian-American. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and because I still had family prior to this war living in Ukraine, I visited Ukraine all the time. So it would be fair to say that even though my base is in New York, I do have a very close connection with Ukraine, and I never really truly left Ukraine, at least not in my heart. Awesome. I'm Asa Nadim, and my movie Crows Are White. It's a film about a filmmaker tired of living in secret, traveling to a remote Japanese monastery to try and seek guidance from a living Buddha. But the only monk who'll speak to him is a, a trainee monk who prefers heavy metal and ice cream over meditation. And it's a movie that explores faith, truth, and love from the top of the mountain to the bottom of an ice cream sundae. Prior to doing this, I was uh, a freelance video journalist. I used to work for the New York Times. I did a lot of branded content, and uh, yeah. Hi there. My name is Shazik Sonoda, and my film is called Drowning in Silence. It is my personal story, I guess, obviously, me being here on this, of my child who passed away. He drowned, and I ended up connecting with other parents with similar stories, as well as experts, and kind of a mission to at least not end it, but find out why so many children drown. And so, yeah, it's processing grief and kind of ends up being a bit hopeful, I believe, in the end. Prior to this, I want to do two lives before, so... Two lives before, I was a producer. I worked at MTV News and Docs, and I did VH1 development. And then I had a moment in advertising and then stopped to have lots of babies. 
So I had four boys in about five and a half years. So I was a stay-at-home mom, lots of juggling. And it wasn't until Yori died that I needed to put my efforts that would have been towards a child, towards something else. So that's where the film comes in. I'm Kelsey Peterson. I uh, did a film with Daniel called Move Me that is about my experience becoming disabled and finding myself as an artist after being a dancer my whole life and sort of juggling acceptance and hope during this adaptation process of coming into my own as a person with a disability and also figuring out how to translate who I am as an artist after losing 75% of my function after a spinal cord injury. So before my injury, I was a dance major. I danced my whole life and a yoga teacher and kind of unintentionally became a filmmaker. And that was an interesting process of translating and it's been fun. Uh, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Great, thank you. And Daniel? My name is Daniel Klein. I'm the co-director of Move Me with Kelsey. I'm a bit of an odd one out here as it is not my personal film. I came on board to help Kelsey articulate her personal film. And I think it's an interesting part of the conversation, how we make our film and how we make it together when it's obviously something so personal for somebody else. Prior to this film, uh, filmmaker, TV producer of various projects, my main project was called The Perennial Plate, which is a documentary series about sustainable food stories around the world. Um, but a little mix of everything in the filmmaking, TV, and food world. I want to just start out by asking you, why did you set out to make this film? I'm going to go first. My journey with making this film started a long time ago. And I didn't know what it was going to be like. So my initial impulse was, in 2005, Ukraine had this political turmoil. And I already lived in New York. And I was Ukrainian. And I've noticed that people are talking about it. And I had a connection to Ukraine. So I figured I'm going to go and make a film. And I didn't know it was going to become this long journey, which ultimately, to answer your question, would be, I had no option. I needed to make this film. I felt like it was almost my curse and blessing and cross to bear to keep making this film. There were times when I was asked, especially at some point, there was no funding, there was no client, there was nobody who would want me to make this film other than myself. And I was struggling to even complete the story, but there was this always internal voice that would speak to me, like, you have to keep going. You know, I wanted to burn all of the footage at some point. Like, I just really wanted to get rid of it. But this notion that I'm looking into something important, I don't know what it is, and I have to make it, and no one else can make it. I've gone too far, and I already see that there is something important happening, and I'm documenting it. So this is more like an abstract explanation, but that's how it was for me. And was it always the case that you knew you were going to put yourself in the frame? If this was a film you were going to make, you had to be in it. Not really. I mean, I'm a journalist, and I used to work on camera a lot, so I don't mind introducing people. I don't mind moderating or even hosting a live shows in the past. So I thought maybe to be like a guide from one scene to another, I could do it like maybe like Michael Moore. He doesn't reveal much about himself. He just talks around, like walks around. Nobody really knows about his family or what his kitchen looks like. You know, for the most part, it's more like just a vehicle. And then in my case, that's what I was okay to do. But it became very quickly clear that I need to put more of myself. And I was actually forced by people who helped me to make this film to get more and more and then bring my family and then just this whole thing became a personal style documentary. Austin, how about you? Why did you set out to make Crows Are White? And then also, why did you put yourself in the frame? Well, you know, the movie that I ended up with is very different than the one that I set out to make. I think the one that I imagined that I'd be making would be something very ethnographic initially. When I first discovered the story of these monks, one of the most compelling things for me was there's only about 100 monks that live on this mountain and they're continuing this very ascetic 
tradition that's been going there for about a thousand years. And at that point, I was at a weird crossroads in my religious identity, and I was unable to even do the most basic of rituals that are asked of me of my religion. So I was kind of curious how they're able to do this when I can't. Another fascinating thing was just the physicality of their rituals. In Islam, we believe that you can attain heaven or enlightenment only when you die. In the Tendai faith, you believe that they can attain enlightenment if they do this particular ritual. And I was really curious about the journey of this one particular monk who's chosen every 10 years to go on a pilgrimage. He has to circle a mountain about the distance of a marathon every night for seven years. And if he succeeds, they believe he'll become a living Buddha. He'll have the knowledge of Buddha. And if he fails, he has to commit suicide. So for me, this was a chance to capture something that very few people had. And I was genuinely curious about his perspective and what wisdom he might have to share with myself or the world. But I, you know, I never intended to put myself in the movie. I would never wish that on anyone. It was uh, a very traumatic experience, one I'm still trying to forget. And it was, you know, it was a process that took many years because I'd been filming for several years. I think for people who haven't watched the movie, when I got there, uh, the monastery failed to tell me that my main subject had taken a vow of silence. So he wouldn't speak to me. And I had spent a great deal of money handing, you know, a motley crew of people to come over and help me. So. I was lost, I didn't know what to do. So I kept returning over the course of a few years thinking that eventually I'll gain their trust and he might talk to me. But after several years, that wasn't happening and I decided the only way to dig deeper into their practice was perhaps to turn the camera on myself and question why the hell do I keep returning? Shaysek, how about you? So, I will say it was actually right after Yori died. I got a couple what I call like lightning bolt moments where I felt like I knew I was supposed to do something. I knew I was supposed to go visit the firefighters that saved him. He was in the hospital for a bit. And I knew I was supposed to make a film. It took me a year, and it was right before his anniversary, the first anniversary of his death. And I kind of looked at myself and said, I've done nothing. I think I've done nothing, I've survived, I had other children, but I've done nothing to honor his memory. And so simultaneously, I started a nonprofit and I started filming. Let me just film for a weekend, see if this thing has legs. And when I set out to do this, I imagined it would be a 60-minute piece of child drowning, talking to experts, et cetera. And at some point, I will say, um, now an executive producer um, and an old editor friend of mine, Joe, and my current editor really said, if you want to really make a good film, you have to put yourself out there. And it was definitely a baby step every time I kind of, okay, I'm in the shot as I'm interviewing someone. And oh, by the way, I was video chatting with people during the whole process of Yori being in the hospital. And I have those on my phone. We can, you know, tap into those moments. So yeah, definitely not the film, as Anson said, not the film I set out to make. But I think because you put yourself in front, you really give people a perspective and an inside look that is just, it's not possible by just narration, really, really sharing those moments. Thank you. So Move Me, as you mentioned, we have two directors, Daniel Klein and Kelsey Peterson. So for every question that I ask, I'm sure they're going to have to <laughs> negotiate that. Do you want to take this or should I take it? So. It looks like Kelsey is reaching toward the mic, so I think she's going to answer this one. I definitely did not think that I was going to have to be so vulnerable, and I didn't set out to make the film that we ended up making. When I first started this project, it really was just my friend asked me if I wanted to go on a road trip and if we could film it. There was like no other intention, really. I was five years post-injury at that time, and hadn't yet really identified as a person with a disability. I wasn't there yet, like that was a really big leap for me. I think especially like having some really deep-seated ableism 
because I think being a dancer just was a really hard leap for me to be like comfortable with saying I'm a woman with a disability and owning that. So at that time I was on a mission to see what was happening in terms of a cure for a spinal cord injury or functional recovery, rather. We went around the country and interviewed researchers and it was a completely different film. And then we realized with our first editor that that story wasn't there. And at the same time, my dad got sick. My friend Gabriel approached me about coming back to dance and doing this production called The Cripple's Dance, which was my first like I had shelved that. I was like, I'm never gonna dance again, this is over. And this clinical trial came into my sphere, so it was like this kind of divine pivot, and we surrendered to that, and really that's when the cameras in a really big way turned on me. And I also knew that I wanted, as a person with a disability, and it being like a very personal story, like I wanted to be a part of telling that story, because I don't think that it would have been as authentic and came from a really like honest and understanding place in terms of what does it mean to live this life. But I also knew I needed a lot of help because I had no idea what I was doing. So I'm supremely grateful for this relationship with Daniel and we've become really good friends too. So this has just been like unbelievable <laughs> in so many ways. What makes a personal film different from other modes of documentary storytelling? Personal films open up a lot of possibilities. For example, they create the opportunity to ask big questions, to ask why are things the way they are and why couldn't they be different or better? Also, they allow you to face the truth of a painful situation or crisis. They also, as Kelsey indicated, allow you to examine your own life and take the full measure of it, where you've been, where you are, where you're going. So maybe let's start with that first one about asking big questions. And I think maybe I'll put Shezik on the spot and just ask you, what were some of the big questions around, for instance, drowning and young children that you felt needed to be asked? I would say... Just initially, drowning is the number one killer of children, one to four. It's a statistic that I didn't know, and I was really... I love our pediatrician, still our pediatrician. She's amazing, and obviously we all know to be safe around water, but no one ever said to me, I'm not blaming anyone, I just want to make that clear, but no one ever said, this is the number one reason your child will die right now. Be careful. And I didn't understand why that wasn't a conversation. We all know we must buckle our children in car seats. We must X, Y, Z, but never did I hear that. So that was a huge thing where I wanted to understand why that's not discussed in these well checks when we see our doctors. And the other big question for me in a weird way is like, where's my child? And I don't know how much I was able to super process that. I have kind of a moment in the film, but death is just, again, the parallels between our film a bit, seeing your father die. It's interesting because you process all of these things as you're filming. You don't know these answers, and, and you're really grappling with understanding and accepting. It's the acceptance piece of where am I or, you know, what is reality? And, and so it's interesting, I think, to see that play out on film and see people understand that. Anyone else? What were some of the questions, the big questions you set out to ask and maybe to try to answer? I was trying to answer questions about Ukraine's direction because living in the United States gave me a perspective where I could see my friends and family living their everyday lives and in parallel some big events like revolutions were unfolding and they did not care much about it because they are in it and maybe in the moment of some uprising they are active but then the minute people go home from all these street protests, they lived their lives as if nothing ever happened. And I had the luxury to actually kept thinking about it. So my big question was like, what is Ukraine's direction? What do Ukrainian people want? What is Ukraine's identity? And then it became my personal question. What is my identity? Because I live in America. Of course, I'm an immigrant. A lot of immigrants here face this identity crisis. What am I? At different times of their lives, people feel either like they reject their home country or they want to keep their home country 
in America as part of. So this kind of roller coaster is very familiar to a lot of immigrants. But when your own country is also going through crisis in Ukraine, it's post-Soviet time when people did not feel Soviet anymore. They felt Ukrainian. What does it mean to be Ukrainian? On top of it, I had to go through all of that as an immigrant living in another country and looking into changes in Ukraine. It was not always easy. It sounds easy now when I talk about it, but even, let's say, 10 years ago when I was not feeling Ukrainian 100% because I spoke Russian, for instance. I tried to speak Ukrainian, but I'm not super fluent because I live here, I speak English a lot. Even that was a little bit intimidating when I would meet some Ukrainians from diaspora who would speak fluent Ukrainian and they know things that I don't know culturally, and I would feel like an outsider. It was quite painful. I understand now that I was not the only one. A lot of people were going through this, but I was the one asking these questions about myself and getting some answers for myself and hopefully for other people in similar situations. So those are like big questions that I'm exploring in the film. It's interesting that I think having a certain amount of distance seems to enable you all to then reach across time or geographic space to then plunge into these stories. So for you, Katya, it's living in Brooklyn, living in the United States, giving you the perspective to look back at your life in Ukraine and what's happening at the time in, in Ukraine. Kelsey, you mentioned it was five years since your accident, so there's that distance of time. Austin, for you, it strikes me that, you know, identity is certainly an issue in your film, a question in your film, and you're sort of struggling in the film with your own Muslim identity and your own identity in general. So for you, I think the search for identity is also a key factor, is it not? Yeah, it wasn't initially. I know the irony of it. For those of you who watch it, when I first set out, I was a person who had abandoned religion, but was yet really gravitated towards this place of these very religious figures. But I think initially I was thinking that it would be a film about religious doctrine, why some people reject it and some people need it in their lives. But it changed over the course of the movie many times. And then I was kind of examining the, the mythology and the theater and performance of religion, how sometimes it can be used to inspire people to, to kind of improve their lives. And then, but at the same time, when I turned the camera on myself or Ryoshin, the heavy metal monk, I could understand the trauma that it can leave to try and live to a painful ideal. But ultimately, I think the movie is really about, especially when it's focused on myself and Ryoshin, it's about trying to find how to be true to yourself in the face of the heavy expectations from your family, your society, your religious institutions, or just your boss, maybe even. I want to show a clip from Katya's film, The Long Breakup, because it's interesting, your title itself, The Long Breakup, indicates kind of a personal, like a relationship, a personal relationship breaking up. But really, we're talking about the relationship between two countries, Ukraine and Russia. And one of the interferences, I would say, in that relationship has been Russian propaganda. So we're going to take a, a look at this clip from your film, which shows really the insidiousness, I would say, of Russian propaganda through the Russian news media. So we'll take a look at this clip now. Вот оно, тамошнее представление о счастье. Мерзость запустения на Красной площади. I watch Russian news coverage of Ukraine, and it's chilling. It's far from the truth. And the overall message is Ukraine has been taken over by national radicals and fascists after a U.S. organized coup in Kyiv. Взяли ребенка трех лет мальчика маленького трусика футболки, как Иисуса на доску объявления прибыли. Один пребывал, двое держали. И вот это все на маминых глазах. Маму держали, и мама смотрела. Вот это все как ребенок изикает кровью. Это не украинская армия, не освободители, это твари. This horrible story becomes a famous fake. But many viewers believe it. Russian propaganda is too powerful. It's far-reaching, influencing people outside of Russia. And obviously this is footage that resonates today. I mean, 
the discussion in Russian media of national socialists and fascists is certainly something we've been hearing about since February in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But is there anything in particular about Russian propaganda or the clip that we just saw, Katya, that you want to talk about in relation maybe to this issue of national identity? Well, of course, because Russian propaganda is one of the factors why a lot of people from Ukraine were confused about their identity, including myself, including my family. And in my film, I do explore a little bit the changes in identity in my parents, for instance. So when propaganda tells them one thing, and they believe it, but then they also live in their life that is slightly different from what the propaganda is telling them, they start developing their own sense of who they are. And in my case, when we say personal documentary, in my case, it's not just about me. It's also about people who are very close to me, like my mother and my stepfather. And having access to them over time, because they're my family. They're not going anywhere. Even if I show up with the camera and they don't want to be on camera, they still have to. <laughs> so in that case, I got to document the changes in their identity and to show how the influence of big things like national channels coming from the Kremlin, where the message is controlled, they didn't really work on Ukrainian territory. And speaking about today, Russia is trying to do the same thing. And it's a whole different subject, but to show the relevance, it's not working in Ukraine anymore. At that time, in 2014 or 15, people were still influenced. Right now, Russian propaganda only works in Russia, and people in Ukraine have no doubt about their identity and who they are. And I documented that change through my personal journey and my family. So, you know, one of the things about personal films is not just including yourself in the frame, it is including, usually, family and friends. And I wanted to talk about that and ask you guys, how did you decide who is going to be in your film and how did you navigate or negotiate their involvement? And alternatively, who did you decide not to include in your film and why? How did I decide? My partner, Don, in the crowd and it was a very fraught conversation when we decided that we would put our lives on screen. Kind of made it easier that we were both traveling a lot and Don's a photographer so pre-pandemic we were mostly living six months apart from each other. At most we'd only spend like six consecutive weeks together in the 10 years we were in our relationship. So it made it easier. We would just start by recording our Skype calls and because there's just the webcam, you quickly, you forget that it's there. So it had the unexpected benefit of capturing a greater degree of intimacy that you normally would be if you had a camera crew. I think some of those early conversations are in there and they're surprisingly very candid. And how about the decision to include your parents in the film? Because they're obviously important characters, quote unquote, and, and have a strong presence in the film, both literally and off camera, because you're talking about them quite a bit. All I had told them was that the movie that I'm making is not going according to plan. And I'm thinking of uh, doing something different. All I said was like, it's going to be a film about an examination of my faith and my relationship with them. And when I actually go home to Ireland to confess to them, I had actually said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a movie about just Muslims living in Ireland. So they were not fully aware at that moment that I was going there to confess my 10-year secret. But since then, my parents have watched a movie. And one of the things that my dad said which I thought was surprising. He was grateful that the cameras were there because he thought that he would be a lot angrier if it was just me and him. And I actually believe he, they might not have spoken to me for a great deal of time, but because there was cameras there, he tempered his anger. Uh, and it was almost like therapy because there's impartial observers there and he couldn't get as angry as he wanted to and so therefore he came to a more harmonious resolution much earlier than he would have done. It's interesting too because I think our parents inherently want us to succeed and when they see you're making a film they probably have a stake in you making a good film and a film that they're proud that you're making so I'm wondering even if your dad is like "Ooh, maybe this is gonna help 
him get this film made finally and provide the ending that he's been seeking? Yeah, it was years of disappointment. You know, my parents are still upset that I'm not a doctor, like most obedient Pakistani children are. You have to understand, my parents are also first-generation immigrants, so for the concept of cinema or movies is so abstract to them. I mean, all my parents do is watch religious propaganda all day long. They have a satellite, and they're just beaming Pakistani religious scholars. So the idea of making a movie or a documentary, in my mother's mind would just go, will there be naked women in this film? <laughs> you know, that was her main uh, primary source of anxiety. Daniel, it looks like you want to jump in here. Yeah, I think who you include in the movie is a lot related to actually like what works in the editing process. We had a lot of characters in our film, other family members of Kelsey's that certainly had very interesting things to say and provided drama and dynamism, but we needed to take them out of the film because we knew that like, for the audience to engage with the characters that we had to be selective about who it was. And as we like found the characters that we wanted to feature, then we knew we needed to fill in those gaps as well. In documentary, you have what you have in a lot of ways, and so you have to just draw from who is available and the best that's there. But also, to, to your point about the therapy, I think something that I've found in filmmaking recently is that you make a movie and you think you're making it for this big audience, but oftentimes the people who take the most from it are the creators of the films and the people involved in the movie. I know this process of making this movie for both Kelsey and I has been so healing and a, and a lifeline during the pandemic, and that the healing that's happened with her family afterwards, after watching the movie, has also been like a way to reconnect and be able to talk about things that maybe weren't talked about before. And I just think it's cool that our intention of the film may not actually be the final thing that has it the most power, but rather how it impacts the immediate circle of the film can be so valuable. Kelsey, did you want to add anything to that? If you haven't seen the film, there are a lot of scenes with your mom, with your dad, with friends. I agree with what Daniel said. It's interesting because when you become disabled, everything in your life changes and every relationship changes. And so there's so much to navigate and sift through and readjust and figure out how you you know, interact with every person in your life because they have to understand you and your experience in a whole new way. Like you're all learning this whole new way of life that you really know nothing about. And so there's so much depth in a lot of that. But when you realize the story you're telling that, oh, this might be interesting to show like this complicated relationship with my sister, for example, and transitioning for us how we navigate our sister relationship post-injury because we don't bond in a lot of the same ways anymore and we don't understand each other in some of the same ways and we've had to, that's been super complicated and sad and challenging. But that part of my life and showing that just didn't benefit the story that we ultimately wanted to tell. And I for sure thought, because it was so compelling and interesting to see that relationship, I thought that was going to be a part of the film, but we just realized, no, this is what we really need to be showing. That's really interesting because as an audience member, you know, I'm thinking, as your sister was mentioned in the film, why aren't we seeing your sister? There must be a reason. The reason is the narrative. Mm -hmm. She just didn't fit the sort of narrative thrust or the path that you were on storytelling-wise, and that's why she's not in the film. So that kind of the film itself dictates often who's going to be in and to what extent. And it's weird because you're like, oh, these people are a huge part of my life. And it's about me, and so it's weird when you're like, oh, my, none of my siblings are really in this film. And I'm so close with all of them. So it's strange when you're like, it's such a personal film, but that's just not the story you're telling. You've only got 80 minutes. Yeah. I was just going to suggest that I just didn't have maybe the option. So my now ex-husband, we actually divorced as I was doing the film. Obviously losing a child is heavy and we processed it differently. I, I almost think I was afraid to ask him. I'm not sure if I ever actually asked him, would you be in this film? I actually kind of went in again after because a lot of people missed that. They were like, where's his dad? Because I show all the other families and there is a partner there. It's also, to me, a reflection of how people process grief. And it is a very lonely thing. 
And I think we both, unfortunately, processed it differently and alone. I make mention of him in the film, but also out of respect. I didn't want to show too much of, it's a personal situation, and I didn't want to pull the curtain behind his side of the story. One of the tools that you all have to tell your stories is archival material. And often this means delving into your personal archive, family photos, videos. Uh, Shazik, you mentioned that you had shot some footage in the hospital, never knowing at the time you were going to possibly use it in a film. It strikes me that going back and looking at that footage when you're editing the film, you're looking at yourself. You're looking at your former self, you know, a younger version of who you are now. Can you talk about what it's like to look at yourself in that archival material and figure out how you're going to use it in your films. I would like to talk about it. I'm so glad. You know, so many people like to talk about themselves and their childhoods and answer questions like yours, and no one wants to hear that, especially your family. They get bored. They don't want to hear the same stories. But because of this documentary, we get a chance to talk about these things and provide some value to hopefully, to other people. So watching some of the footage of myself and selecting uh, segments for the film was also kind of learning process. I have some scenes that never made it into the film, but they were, uh, during test screenings, they were very popular because I have some footage of myself coming to the United States in like 1991 as a very like arrogant and sassy and very ignorant young Ukrainian girl, absolutely uncultured because I've never been anywhere other than Ukraine. And then I come to the United States and my cultural shock is like crazy. I've shown these scenes to people and they were dying laughing and I wish I could keep it, but it didn't contribute into the story. So I couldn't use it as much as I wanted to. And I know people get entertained and it could be fun. And also it's so shocking to see myself and also showing this footage to people who didn't know me then. And it's like, almost embarrassing how much I've changed and, you know, became more composed and well, you know, behaved and culturally <laughs> appropriate. But as much as I would like to keep it, it had to go. Some of the stuff that I was doing uh, in the 90s in Ukraine, it also gave me perspective, but not really about myself, but about the times. Because in the 90s in Ukraine, I was a freshman in college, but I was already given opportunities to do some serious work on TV. And it seemed very normal to us. And looking back, I was, everybody was like, how old are you? Plus, you, it's harder to tell what you look like. 15, 16, 20, it's like the same. So I'm like, who, who let you do that on camera with a microphone? And I'm like, yeah, it's a big television station, 2 million viewers. It's not a college TV station. So it's just understanding how different times were in a different country. At the end, you still pick not the cute parts, but you only pick the ones that work for the story and provide some value for the film. Even if you have to, what they call, kill your kittens, you just kill them. Or you ask the editor to kill them. My editor was great at this. Just, let's just yeah. you know, chop it all and slice it and dice it. Done. Shaysek, how about you? It's really painful. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how sad I was. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be sad. But I've done a really good job of staying incredibly busy in my life. And just I go so fast that I don't think about it. And I've, at this point, separated myself. Like, it's a story that I tell about someone else. This is not my story. And, and just even watching your film and seeing you in the hospital, it just takes you back to that moment. And like I said, for me, I just, I don't want to say that I felt sorry for myself, because that's the one thing when I always say to people, please, when you watch my film, don't feel sorry for me. Empathy is great, but let's do something about childhood drowning, right? Don't feel sorry for me, but I found myself feeling sorry for myself. Like, oh my gosh, like, how did you get through that? Right. You're like, oh, I've been through some shit. <laughs> some shit. Yeah. And I need to, like, be tender with myself and not question my grief. I think a lot of us in our culture is really like, okay, this is your trajectory and you should be over this. Or, you know, we're like condemned for being sad for a long time, I think a lot of the time. And it's like, when you lose something so profound, something that defines you, whether it's your child or your body or your dad or anything, I don't think you ever get over that. And so your grief is just always there, but it 
transforms and it changes and it ebbs and flows. And watching that footage is like this reawakening of that. And so it's healing and cathartic, but it's also kind of torture <laughs> sometimes, you know, like you're sifting through memories that are just so profound and seeing yourself and, or your child or your dad and missing those things so deeply. So that's just another part of this process that's just really complicated. There's so many layers to it. Yeah, and I think as the audience, when you show us those moments from your lives, there's such a physicality to, to those moments. It struck me how much of our childhood is spent running around. And so your son, he's constantly running and moving. And same with you, Kelsey, you're running and your dad is picking you up and throwing you around. And mm. there's just so much movement happening. And of course, we feel the tragedy and the weight of that. But it's also, there's a beauty and a joy as well. So thank you for sharing those moments with us in your films. They're really beautiful. Thank you. I want to get to this idea of, at some point, you're all going to sort of have to face the truth. Your truth, as you've laid it out through the course of these movies. And it's interesting because I think in pretty much everyone's case up here, that means going back to the source. Whether the source is the place you grew up, whether it's the place where tragedy happened, ultimately you are going to go back to the source that began these journeys. And so, Shasik, we're going to look at a clip from your film. Can you give us a context for that if it needs one? It's the return to the pool where my son drowned. Okay, thank you. As much as I try to run, I can't escape this nightmare. And I often wonder if facing you is the only way out. First, I just really want to thank you for inviting me into this moment. And I would love to hear what you're noticing. I guess it's as much as I'm trying to be present here in this moment, I'm like PTSD is in full effect right now. It's almost an out of body experience. Mm. I can't figure out if it's me trying to like find him or if it's me trying to like disconnect mm. from reality that my kid isn't here, yeah. you know? Some part of me feels like I've done so good and I've like been doing work and trying to heal and stuff, but I feel so stagnant at the same time. Like I'm just stuck here. I just don't know if I can come to like acceptance or something. He drowned in this pool. And I was right there. So some intense moments there for sure. And I guess a spoiler is that for both Drowning in Silence and Move Me, there's an additional scene in Drowning in Silence where you are in the water, Shasik, and in that pool. And then, Kelsey, for you, you also re return, I believe, to Lake Superior. I don't know if you feel like talking about either the clip or those final scenes, but anything you might want to add. Let's see. I will say that it was probably the most challenging part of the film. For me, filming it, it was, I don't know why I'm at a loss for words. It's bad on a podcast to be at a loss for words, but I got in the water and that was the one moment that I didn't want the cameras to be on. I had a, an experience and I am like shielding myself from the camera because I want to have that full, I can't help what's happening. I didn't know what was gonna happen and I wasn't ready for what was gonna happen. But again, there's healing, there's healing, there's healing, right? So I think it was important to revisit that space, but it was incredibly challenging. But I also think it helps everyone resonate with what's happened and how that could feel. 
feel like so much of my most intense grief for my injury was the first few years and like we were talking about archival and grief and watching that and this whole filmmaking process I feel like was more of the grief for my dad which is I think surprising for a lot of people to hear because it's like there is so much like I'm still frustrated with my body on the daily like Daniel had to meet me at my car today because my ramp wouldn't come out and so he had to like hold a button out from the inside of my van shit like that happens all the time where you're just like this is so hard but the filmmaking process itself and that post-production was really my memory of it is really me grieving the death of my father it was kind of like the best and the worst things of my life were happening at the same time like i was finding myself as an artist again which was unbelievable and really unexpected and I was also losing another thing that defined me so yeah you have these really unexpected and painful moments in this filmmaking process and you just are like hey here we go it's wild so I want to just turn it over to the audience for a second while you're thinking of your questions is there anything else you wanted to share I just want to say that I watched all the films (laughs) along with Ken (laughs) And it is different. I've watched a lot of films and they're beautiful, but there's something within these personal films. Like I felt, I don't know if it's because I was gonna be on a panel with you all, but I just feel connected in this weird way. (laughs) Maybe it's the panel. But there were just parallels, and that's the beauty to me in these films, is you feel a parallel often with your own life and what's happening within your own life. And I just want to say it's an honor to be up here with you all. And I just really appreciated, I I had tears. It's just amazing to be able to share that much of yourself is all. So thank you. Can I add something to this? I have not watched all of the films, but I just wanted to say that you mentioned bravery at first, and you know, to put yourself in a film like this, I think it's real bravery, but it's also sharing, and I'm not talking about myself, my story was easy. I'm talking about you guys, because I feel like it's more intimate and it's more really like about something deeper. You also give so much to people by sharing your story and by letting them look into your lives and showing things that are very, very personal and very intimate, but really it, it's giving it to the world. And the way that you share your story, it goes out there and it just changes lives of people who watch it or it gives them insights that they would never be able to understand otherwise. And I think this is the most incredible thing and it's really brave and I think it takes special person to do that. Daniel. I have always said like one of the reasons why I thought Kelsey would make a great subject for a film was her willingness to be vulnerable. But at a Q&A for our film the other night, someone instead used the word generous. And I think that ties into what you're saying. To make a film that's so like, you know, reaches down to the depth of your soul and sharing that with someone is like an act of generosity. So thank you all. Absolutely. Very well said, and thank you all. And I do want to let the audience know that these films will all be playing here at the festival. So we just have time for one or two questions, if anyone has any from the audience. So just to repeat the question, the audience member, she has some personal archival material that she's had for several years. And the question is, How do you find somebody you can trust on your editing team to go through that personal material with you? I will just say that my editor, I'm not sure if I paid her for editing or for therapy. It is finding an editor that at least understands a moment because obviously some things that we go through you can't understand unless you've done them. I don't know what the answer is other than just once you find an editor, at least for me, it was just someone that I trusted with my life story, period. And so I processed a lot of it. We processed it together. And so really it's just finding someone you can speak with. Absolutely it is. Yeah, I feel like having a team that you trust and you can really vibe with is such a big deal because then you can just bring your best self forward and your most authentic, vulnerable self and then it really lends to telling a good story. 
for me, it was like having a co-director that I have a bond with and a friendship and a trust and respect. And then also shooters that are so like present, but in such a way that you almost forget they're there sometimes. And then also an editor, just the whole team can help you really bring your story forth in the best way. So it's, I think a lot of that process for me was about trusting my gut and really figuring out, okay, how do I feel about these people I'm working with? But dang, if every, like we, you know, we watched this film so many times and every time I watched it, which I cried pretty much every time I watched the movie. And then my wife and I would go in bed and be like, Kelsey just had to fucking relive like all the trauma of her life again. You know, it's really hard through that process. We, you know, formed a strong friendship. So I think friendship and trust is really the cornerstone. You're in it for us to make something that the best thing and there's not ego involved. It's a collective effort. And then it is like you're in therapy together. You're like going through this whole experience and grieving and working through everything and processing together. Cause there were times that Daniel would be like, you don't have to watch the film again. If you're not ready, don't do it. I'm like, okay, cool. Cause it's a lot. It's a lot. We're like, oh, this is my life. And I have to go through and feel all those feelings all over again. Well, before we go, I wanted to end with a moment from Move Me in which Kelsey's friend Matthew quotes a line from a Wendell Berry poem, which is, the impeded stream is the one that sinks. And then Matthew says to Kelsey, the clarity with which you tell that story of how you feel it is a singing. Pain sucks, but can be a birthplace of beauty. And I would just say that all of you have created with these films a birthplace of beauty. So thank you so much for sharing your stories, for making these beautiful films, and for being with us today. 